Hello and welcome to the Tech Disputes Network's Need to Know podcast series. If you haven't been listening so far, Need to Know delivers to your inbox short and accessible podcasts from the experts in the field on the latest developments in technology from the perspective of how they might go wrong. My name is Sam Roberts. I'm a partner at Cook, Young & Keaton and one of the founders of TDN. Today, we have Michael Jacobs, a senior counsel at Lockboard, to continue the recent theme we've been discussing on smart contracts and the law, with a focus on the limits of ownership and possession on blockchain. I'm going to apologize in advance because I've got a bit of a cold, which you can possibly hear in my voice. Um, So I'm going to let Michael do most of the talking, which is only how it should be anyway. Um, And um, as as usual, we're going to sort of keep this fairly freewheeling and unscripted. Um, but I'm going to start by um, welcoming Michael. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, what do you do? How did you get started? Sure. Um, so thanks, Sam. By background, I'm a, I guess I'd describe myself as a banking and finance litigator. And probably in the That's last four... Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it, there was obviously sort of a very busy period, you know, 10 years ago or so, doing lots of fallout from Lehman Brothers. Um, sort of four or five years ago or so, I strayed a little bit into more techie stuff, things like GDPR, um, which seemed to be almost sort of the next um, big area for claims or potential claims, certainly liability. And you know, I've explored group actions as well in that sphere. And uh, more recently, I've been turning my eye to um, the world of crypto assets, um, just because there's a lot of things, to be frank, that I don't quite understand. And I, I just feel that you're if, not alone um, there, believe me. <laughs> well, exactly. And I, I think if um, even you know lawyers generally and you know very um, smart people around the place are struggling to understand some concepts, um, you know, as a litigator, that's when the alarm bells start going. And you know, there's certainly I think some litigation risk out there, or at the very least, legal risk and uncertainty. And um, it, it's just fascinating to explore some concepts, um, even if we're not looking at um, judgments, reported cases, just sort of trying to work out ahead of the curve what the issues could be down the line. I like the focus that you put on it um, in terms of, you know, trying to understand things, because I think there's a sort of, um, I don't know about you, I've always had this impression that there's a certain amount of machismo or bravado that comes with the territory of being a disputes lawyer, where admitting that you don't understand something is akin to showing your soft underbelly, which you would never want to do when there's a you know possible opponent um, sitting across from you. And um, but I think it's so refreshing to hear you say you know we, we need to get to grips with this technology because it's so you know lawyers are still talking about Bitcoin as if it's this new thing in town, but it's been around for more than a decade now, and the p- pace of change um, in cryptocurrency specifically, but um, blockchain generally is such that it's you know it's difficult for even real sort of tech heads to keep a pace with but uh for lawyers it's it's obviously even harder and um and uh you know i i think sort of taking that (coughs) that approach that we're all still school children here and have a lot to learn is uh, absolutely the right one so um yeah good good stuff um and um so we got talking originally um after the last podcast, uh, TDM podcast we did about smart contracts and the law. And we've sort of been looking at it from slightly different angles. And you had some very interesting um, thoughts about sort of going off in a slightly different direction. Um, do you sort of want to introduce in general terms um, what your <coughs> sort of topic is, I suppose? 
Yeah, um, and I guess I'll, I'll start it by prefacing that, you know, as litigators, you and I are used to um, having to think about some really fundamental things anytime there's a potential dispute, such as, you know, identifying the relevant parties, the relevant assets in question, how you might have to establish ownership, looking at where assets are located, and working out who might own or control assets and how to take control of them yourself if you need to, say, for enforcing a judgment. And it's pretty easy to do that in terms of conventional assets like real estate, um, shares, um, and physical assets. But um, in the crypto asset world, it's it's very different. And there was um, something that happened. I guess it was a piece of performance art on the blockchain, I guess you might describe it as, um, a few months ago at the end of last year, which um, on the one hand is just a, you know, a fairly interesting thing to comment on um, as an interesting blockchain event. But I think it for lawyers and litigators, it throws up some really interesting legal questions and conundrums. So um, perhaps I'll just go ahead and describe roughly yeah, what happened there. Yeah. I think um, the one of the, I, I would say I, I love these sort of examples because, you know, often this stuff and it, it really sort of throws the limits of, of the sort of laws interpretation of smart contracts and blockchain technology into really sharp relief. But they examples like this so often fly under the radar. So I think it's great um, when when, you know, you you sort of able to identify them and, uh, you know, help the rest of us get up to speed. So, yes, please do. Great. So. Um... So here's a scenario. Imagine um, one morning you open up your computer and you find that a digital asset, in this case, a non-fungible token or NFT, has been deposited into your wallet that you didn't buy, you didn't solicit, it's just appeared there. And it, it seems to be potentially quite valuable because it's been, you can work out it's a low addition number. There aren't many of these things, only a few people receive them. And it's been made by a relatively popular digital creator. Um, in that situation, many might, try to monetize it so sell it but you, you soon realize that you can't sell it or transfer it or dispose of it and it turns Why out is that yeah. just for us for, for like our, the sort of lay listeners who are not um quite as au fait with the technology here why why can i not sell it well uh, <laughs> at first you might wonder how, you know why not because typically if something is yours or if it's token yeah. in your wallet you can sell it you would you just list it on an exchange, for example, or a marketplace in, in mm. case of NFTs, things like OpenSea. Because, I mean, it looks um, like a gift, I guess. It, exactly. Um, in this case, it, it later transpired. Um, that people were sort of flapping about trying to work out what was going on when they, they realised they couldn't sell. But w within a few hours, it became clear that the token smart contract prevented them from doing so. Um, so what, what this actually was, it was a token that was supposedly gifted by this digital artist who's known as PAK, P-A-K, who's a, uh, anonymous, I guess a little bit like a Banksy of the crypto asset world, um, maybe not quite as mischievous, but this is a slightly mischievous example of their work, um, deposited roughly um, 30 of these tokens to 30 different wallets. And... It, it wasn't so much that part that was interesting. It was what happened next. So they were sitting there. The, the people um, who seemed to own them by having them in their wallets couldn't do anything with them. So it sort of begs the question, well, you know, what, what can I do with this? Is, is, it, is it a pointless thing? Is it, is it of limited or zero value? And then shortly afterwards, the tokens were actually transferred out of their wallets to what's known as a burn address which is essentially a wallet addressed somewhere on the blockchain that supposedly no one knows the keys to. And just it's, it's automatically, the, just automatically sent there. Seemingly, well, it's, it, um, they, they all seem to be transferred at the same time, sort of within a few seconds of each other, um, not, not at the instigation of the people 
whose yeah. wallets they were in. Huh. Um, and that's as good as a disposal, essentially, on the blockchain. It's very hard, you know, whilst you could destroy a physical painting, for example, by burning it on the blockchain, um, you will burn an NFT by sending it to the so-called burn address. Yeah. Is that a bit like when I sort of open up my Revolut app to um, <clears throat> transfer some cryptocurrency and it says, make sure you're sending it to the right, you know, that you send your Bitcoin to Bitcoin and not sort of Bitcoin to Bitcoin SV or something because it will disappear forever. It, it's similar to that, I think. Um, and again, this is one of those things I have to admit, I still haven't quite worked out. Um, so they, they, they're not, it's not like deleting a file off a computer um, where... Um, you know, it may well be gone forever if you delete it properly. Um, it, it seems like you can still view assets within this burn address, um, perhaps, but it's just that nobody can access it. So it's as yeah. good as deleting. And I suppose for tax purposes, if you wanted to get rid of something, that's how you do it in the crypto space. I suppose in theory, you know, one day, generations from now, someone might generate a new public uh, address and discover that they had inherited a load of um, assets that were sent to this burn address just completely by chance. Exactly, and that'd be a fascinating legal um, situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, what was even track. more? Yeah, so so you know, at that moment in time, people presumed, oh well, you know, that, that the show was over. They'd been given a token that wasn't really theirs; it'd been destroyed, and that was that. Uh, and then there was one further transfer. These things were transferred out of the burn address, which, as far as I no, hasn't typically been done before and it's presumed that you know once you burn an nft that's the end of it and they weren't sent back to the people who were gifted them initially they were sent back to the wallet of this person who created the tokens um pack so in it, that's why i guess it's a piece of performance art what it was really meant to be doing was showing um what what people consider to be ownership conventionally you know seeing something in your wallet and assuming it's yours um not just because it's there, but because you can do certain things with your assets, such as dispose of it, sell it, transfer it. Um, that it, it may not actually mean that you own something simply by having it in your wallet. So, um, asset litigator, <laughs> go on, go on. No, I was just going to say. So, I mean, I often like um, because I'm quite basic. I like to sort of try and analogize blockchain concepts to things that happen in real life, um, sort of tangible things that, that you and I can relate to. Um, is there an equivalent of this in real life? Is it like sort of waking up in the morning? I think, you know, like waking up in the morning and finding a sort of parcel on your doorstep, um, which, I mean, maybe there isn't because it's not like someone could just sort of automatically take that away from you, is there? I don't know. Maybe there is. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So I, and, uh, we can come onto this later. This concept of airdrops in the uh, crypto world are increasingly common. People essentially receiving tokens for free without requesting them or buying them. Um, now, in in the real world, with physical objects, that's quite an unusual thing. I guess in the case of shares, you might get dividends, you know, um, special dividends that you weren't expecting so perhaps it's akin to that but there you know if, if you did receive a dividend you'd expect once it's once the money's hit your account um it's yours and that's the end of it whereas um yeah i guess the, the, the point here that i should probably mention is the only reason this happened is because the smart contract for these nfts so allowed it um and what it goes to show really is that nfts and crypto assets generally can be very sophisticated and be programmed in a certain way that allows them to do things that ordinarily other assets wouldn't be able to do such as you know self-destruct or 
automatically be transferred from one location to another. So it is something that um, if this did ever catch on and become a thing, it would be a very interesting thing to grapple with, particularly if you're trying to enforce against one of these, for example. Automatically, as a sort of uh, potential buyer slash owner of digital assets, that sort of makes me really wary that I might be, say I were in the market for NFTs and I am 100% not, but like, let's, let's just sort of fantasize for a second. Um, if I were buying an NFT, how could I be comfortable that it wasn't just going to disappear from my wallet? I mean, do I need to sort of start diving into the code in the smart contract? Is, is there someone who can do that for me? Could, do I have to buy a, pay a consultant just to know that this thing isn't going to sort of vanish off to a burn address or someone else after I've paid good money for it? So I, I think there's a couple of answers to that. Um, the first is that yeah, I, I try to read terms and conditions when I can when buying things, although I have to admit I don't. So you know, if there's a new, um, if it's an app being downloaded from an app store, I generally just click accept knowing that yeah. you know, I'm essentially relinquishing any well, I mean, um, rights. If you're buying a pair of trainers from an online store, it's not like you're going to wake up and they'll have just vanished. So, I mean, some, some things you could be relatively comfortable about. Exactly. But, but this, this is... So one of the things that concerns me, especially as a lawyer and litigator, and why I've really been trying to focus on this, is that um, I've, I've tried to look at smart contracts before, and to be frank, I don't understand them. And when, when you can read a conventional consumer contract or loan agreement back to front, and then you're confronted with something that is, you know, it's got contract in the name, but essentially it's just lines of computer code and um, certain instructions as to how the token will work. Um, it's it's quite scary, and I think unless you, it seems to me, unless you really spend weeks or months learning this stuff, and it's it's not law, it is essentially computer programming, then I don't think you could, as, as a potential purchaser, have a hundred percent certainty on what it is you're buying and how it mm -hmm. might function over time. That's fascinating slash potentially quite scary if you're you know in that asset market. Interesting. And, uh, so the, the follow-up thing to that is um, that there may well be tokens that appear, or that, you know, for example, tokens that are airdropped to people or that they, they might want to buy proactively. Um, if you're in that situation, you, you know, do you want to or should you interact with the token because there could be some sort of malicious element to it? You just mm -hmm. don't know that contracts can have all sorts of permissions such as... Um, you, know, you might give permission for a particular token or contract to wipe out your wallet, and there, there have been cases of that. So it can be um, sort of like blockchain malware. It, essentially, it is. Yeah, and um, you know, there's been lots said about crypto asset fraud, and one of the common ways for um, these frauds to happen is people might receive a token in their wallet, and in fact, people with crypto asset wallets will quite commonly just receive tokens. Um, and uh, yeah, they are a form of malware. And if you try and do something with them, such as list them for sale or interact with them in any way, there have been reports that um, you know you have to give certain permissions. And in doing so, you're actually you know, if you're not reading the smart contract or don't understand it, you could be doing a lot more than actually just selling or listing for sale that item. Okay, so um, just so I we, we've gone off in a sort of slightly interesting direction here, which I don't think we were kind of originally planning to, but this is this is why I love these conversations. So, if when you when you say token, you might end up, you might have a token airdrop to you. 
say I have a, a wallet um, hosted with, I don't know, Coinbase, for example, um, and all I have in there are just, you know, Bitcoin. I'm, I hold Bitcoin. When you say a token, is this going to look like a, um, a sort of one of the mainstream cryptocurrencies? Could someone just sort of give, gift me a hundredth of a Bitcoin and would that have the malware in it? Or would it be some sort of slightly esoteric thing? From what I've read about, they, they, they wouldn't typically impersonate existing well-known okay. um, tokens, although they, they could do quite easily. Um, they, they would tend to just have a slightly obscure name or perhaps yeah. be named to sound interesting and attractive, you know, but crypto or punk or ape right. in the name, people may well click on it or try to sell it. Right. Um, so that could just so be yeah. like a totally new blockchain just, just sort of built for the purposes of defrauding people potentially. Pretty much. And yeah, I, I guess this oh. just goes back to the point that, um, you know, if, if you see something you know, in your wallet, I, I suppose in that example, yes, you may well own the particular token, but it would be not, not just worthless, but potentially very dangerous. And yeah. you just can't verify what it is without understanding the smart contract. And how do you get rid of it? I mean, it's like having a mouse infestation in your house, isn't it? It's, it's They're yours, <laughs> but you don't want them. It is. And so, again, I have to... Sorry, I only mentioned mention mice because I, uh, I, I discovered one in a mouse trap that had been there for some time under the sofa this morning. So there's... Oh, dear. There. Well, at, at least it was in a trap. Kind of disgusting. Um, from what I have seen and read about this, the, the prevailing view seems to be that um, there, are, there are two things you can and should do. One, there is apparently a way to revoke token permissions. So if you have at some point given a particular token or contract permission, to do things, um, you can go onto a website like Etherscan, which essentially shows wallet contents and allows you to link up your wallet to it. You can revoke um, permissions for that token to do anything, which is a, a form of safety. And then the other thing is essentially just leaving it alone altogether. I think if you see anything in your wallet that you're not expecting to receive or you don't understand what it is, the best thing to do is absolutely nothing. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, that was a really interesting little um, tangent, which are uh, completely unplanned. Um, so some really good tips there. Um, so I sort of, I guess, getting back onto the track of <clears throat> what we were originally planning to talk about was the sort of, um, you know, the, the difficulties, potential difficulties that the law might have in interpreting um, this piece of blockchain performance art um, that we were just talking about. Um, in the sense that I think most of us probably would have expected that the contents of our wallet from time to time were our possessions and ours to do what we wanted with, um, subject to you know any other contractual rights that we might have had um, with, with any third parties. Um, but it sounds, based on what you're saying from this example, that that's not necessarily true. Exactly. I think that's something that this performance shows um so there is a presumption that if you go into your computer or mobile phone and look at the contents of your wallet you would assume that everything in there belongs to you um definitely it, simply because you know, it's in your wallet it's there in some shape or form um but i guess the fact that a we now know in theory the smart contract can allow it to move around and essentially deprive you of the rights that are consistent with ownership such as the ability to transfer it or sell it yourself um, and, and, and I guess there's this bigger question as to whether, you know, what is a wallet? Um, it's, it's not like a bank account where it's intrinsic, intrinsically linked to you as a person. 
um, in theory, you know, if somebody got hold of the keys to your wallet or if you gave the keys to your wallet away or told someone how to access it, then they would have control over that wallet and therefore control over the assets in there. Um, as to whether that amounts to you know, actual ownership or legal ownership, I'm, I'm not clear that the courts have quite grappled with that yet. But yeah. you can imagine lots of situations where it's not as simple as it looks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I guess I guess the sort of provisional conclusion is that, um, um, which may, may have been obvious to others, um, less obvious to some, that <clears throat> your wallet isn't necessarily proof of ownership. It's what proof of possession from time to time, the contents. I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, if you were to think of an example where you had um, a couple of fraudsters um, who had taken some crypto assets, um, of, obviously the fact that you've got a crypto asset in your wallet as a fraudster, that's no indication that it's legally yours. It's simply the place sure. that you're storing it, like you know, perhaps a warehouse, you know, storing physical goods that are stolen. Um, but the, I guess the issue you have is that there's nevertheless a strong presumption, at least, that um, something being in a wallet is, you know, it, I, I suppose keeping something in a wallet is a, it's, you're doing something with the asset that is consistent with ownership. Yeah. But it, it, it isn't necessarily ownership in its own right. Yeah. So you, you would need to look at other factors, I guess. Yeah. So and going back to the sort of idea of um, you could you could just sort of dispose of your wallet lock, stock and barrel um, in exchange for cash or payment or whatever. Um, that's quite an interesting idea because let's sort of um, sort of hypothesize a, a different token. Uh, so we we're talking about this. Um, what was the name of the token? The, the pack token again? It was the hate token. Hate. So. In that example, the token found its way back to the original artist, right? So let's sort of hypothesize a token where it didn't do that, where you know it was just sort of airdropped to you and 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 seemingly was going to stay there in perpetuity, but you also couldn't sell it. Which is like, I, again, going back to sort of trying to think of real world examples of this, it's sort of difficult to. Um, I think one example we were sort of talking about over email was Japanese knotweed which is, you know, it's, it's there. It's really difficult to get rid of. Um, it's definitely yours. Um, it, you, you might not want it um, and it might cause you a lot of headaches, but one way of getting rid of it would be to sell the entire house um, and then it's no longer yours. I mean, assuming that you could find a buyer for it, but I guess um, that is potentially a way of um, dealing with the problem with, um, with, sorry, so-called problem with with tokens like hate that that are sort of airdropped to you and 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 you can't sell. Um, but that's quite an interesting idea in itself because the smart the the the, the, the from the perspective of um, of coders law, where smart contracts are supposed to be the law, the contracting party who you know receives the token is supposedly a party to that contract, but what you would be doing there would be actually stepping out of those shoes and saying, no, 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 someone else is going to step in these shoes. Um, and you've kind of almost done a unilateral novation in a way mm -hmm. by just sort of yeah. selling the wallet out from under you. 
And this goes to, I guess, a fundamental, maybe not a problem, but just a sort of oddity. You're, you're right that you know, smart contracts, you'd think they are a contract between the person who created the token or contract and the person who holds it in their wallet. But that, that you're right, that's not necessarily the case. And funny enough that there were, it seems, a number of people, um, it, you see this from time to time, actually, if, if for some reason a token isn't transferable, the idea of selling an entire wallet um, it, it's not an unknown um, thought. You know, people have floated it before. I'm not sure if it's actually been done, but it's, it, it's, a, it's a bit like selling you know, um, property. As you say, sometimes you can sell a property. Actually, sometimes if it's held by a company, you might just buy the company rather than the sure. you know the actual land. Um, and sort of taking this back to you know, what we're talking about, trying to work out who the owner is. Um, you don't just look at the wallet. You you do have to look up the chain, unless we know yeah. uh, blockchain world. That's potentially difficult. Well, that's, there's actually um, I think that's actually a recognised form of money laundering um, in m- mirroring the disposal of assets. So that if you uh, <clears throat> you know if if you sort of transfer some some stolen assets or proceeds of crime into one wallet and they s- seemingly just stay there, then it may well be that the person who has control of that has changed because they've swapped wallets with with someone else i suppose um all of which would be totally invisible um someone just monitoring that first blockchain so sort of coming at it from the litigator's perspective if you say had to enforce against some assets that were in a wallet um and we we know the english court can Mm. do that now um it, it is possible that you would have to look quite far up a number of chains to work out who actually controls a wallet. To, you know, it's easier when it's on an exchange because you know the buck stops with the exchange pretty much. But there are wallets that aren't with exchanges, and I think that's where it starts to get a lot more tricky. In practice. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that is true. Um, <clears throat> that is all very, very interesting and very. Um, good food for thought. Um, One thing, I guess, since we're sort of just, um, we're probably coming to a close, but we're also talking about um, money laundering and fraud. Um, We were sort of swapping a few ideas on evading enforcement um, and the idea of, um, can smart contracts be programmed to move assets around to evade enforcement? Um, You also, raise the idea of, of self-executing judgments. Do you sort of want to share a few thoughts on those subjects? Yeah, I, I've heard this um, concept raised by a few people, you know, down the line, if the courts, um, especially if we had a central bank digital currency, it could just be that when you get to court judgment, you can it enforces automatically against the, um, the wallet of the defendant or um, respondent. And thinking about how this hate mechanism token works on the other hand that seems to work the other way if if you can program a contract to um, have the token move around between wallets you can imagine at some point some sort of cat and mouse um, between judgment creditors and the debtors Um, and it, it could prove very interesting i think what you'd probably have to do is work out how to injunct um that from happening I, I don't know if that would mean you have to have the contract altered um, or somehow put a block on this sort of thing to the extent that you're able to I think it sort of reminds me um, 
I'm really going to show a gap in my knowledge here, but there is a, a sort of equivalent concept, I think, in trust law, where um, if um, you can sort of build into a trust instrument um, a provision that if someone starts probing around or inquiring about it, then the trust automatically uh, disappears from its current jurisdiction to go and reconstitute elsewhere. Um, and that happens just automatically by virtue of what the, the trust deed says, which, um, I mean, maybe there are legitimate uses for that, but it does sort of, um, you know, on the surface sort of sound quite similar to, you know, um, uh, this idea of sort of evading enforcement. I guess what you're talking about is kind of an automatic version of that, um, but with digital assets rather than just, um, you know, traditional um, shows as in action and, and possession. Yeah, and another sort of follow-on thing that I found quite alarming is that this, this hate token showed that in theory you can send something to a burn address and make it appear that the item's been destroyed or disposed of, and yet it can somehow reappear, um, which again might be some way that you could seek to evade enforcement. If you, it's essentially a form of concealing assets, um, and you know there might be some interesting tax consequences there as well. You might be able to make it appear that you've suffered a loss, for example, by disposing of something only for it mm. to reappear later. So, um, so HMRC needs a bunch of programmers to go scrutinizing the, uh, the, loan, the, the, the lines of these smart contracts. Potentially, I, I think um, the, the issue we have at the moment, it seems to be that, um, you know, I've, I've looked at FCA surveys on UK consumers, um, crypto asset ownership, and it seems that the median holdings for those individuals that do hold it are you know, a few hundreds of pounds, so I think to the extent that you have any sort of tax evasion, it's, you know, it's going to be a minority of people who are holding very high amounts and ultimately it's probably some criminality aspect to it. But um, yeah, as to how or if HMRC would be equipped to investigate this sort of thing, um, I, I know that they have got experts in the field, but they, I think they really have to um, be ahead of the game to mm. understand how people might be evading or avoiding thanks yeah cool well um on that note i think um that probably covers it um unless there's anything you wanted to add by way of closing shot Parting not shot. really i think i uh, know it's um the only thing really to flag is that um all, all of this really gives me cause for concern as a lawyer or litigator because um like, like we said at the beginning it's a whole world that um, e even experts are struggling to keep up with on a daily basis as new sorts of um, scams or frauds or mechanisms for moving tokens around seem to appear. So um, I think we just have to try and keep up with it as best as we can. And if, if there are any legal problems down the line, hopefully we'll be vaguely just about equipped to deal with them. Great. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Um, this has been um, fascinating, um, as expected. Um, so really appreciate your time. Um, and um, hopefully see you at the next TDN event. Yeah, hopefully. Thanks, Sam. 
A huge thanks to Michael for taking part in TDN's Need to Know podcast series. If you've made it this far and are still listening, a big thanks to you as well. And if you have something interesting to say about technology and how it might go wrong, get in touch at inquiry at disputes.tech or drop me a line directly to sam.roberts at cyklaw.com. We'd love to have you on the series. See you next time.